This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To the subject of money, all of us have an opinion. But if our opinion is strong enough, then it becomes a conviction. An opinion is when we think of money in just in general terms. We think of its usefulness, we think of its necessity, its desirability. But as a conviction, then it's how much of a hold does it have in our lives? Do we struggle to part with it? Do we use it wisely? Do we invest it in God's kingdom? Are we of a generous spirit? So whether consciously or unconsciously, money has a way of controlling us. How we interact with others on a social level. How we respond to the needs of others. How we respond to the needs of God's kingdom. Jesus had much to say about money and possessions. Many of his parables dealt with that in full. And so he knew very well that we have need of such things. The question is, if we don't control the desire of such things above our desire for the kingdom of God, then what is controlling us? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that clearly we had need of such things that the Gentiles seek, uh, for Gentiles put in unbelievers. And he says, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of such things. There's no issue with that. Necessary, we all need it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler, it showed him and it showed us that he was holding on so tightly to his possessions that he was even prepared in the end to turn his back on Jesus and his whole eternal future. The parable of the wealthy farmer, remember the one who says, I will pull down my barns and I will build bigger barns and there I will bestow all of my goods. He had bumper crops and he wanted to put them away, take his ease. This is what he said. I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, thy fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke 12. And so money is such a fundamental and elemental part of our lives that we need to be master of it. If we're not master of it, it will be master of us. It'll either be one way or the other. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. So I'm not going to share this today simply because 
I want you to put more into the offering. And that's exactly why I took the offering before I shared this. So that you would have no query about my intent on doing this. I'm not sharing this today because the church has some great pressing need uh, that if it's not met, uh, we would not be viable as a church. Because that's not the truth. I'm sharing this today for one reason only. Because how you handle your money and possessions will have a tremendous effect on your spiritual life. Whether you know it or not, it will affect you spiritually. Now we know that it's true that God's kingdom requires resourcing. God's house requires resourcing. All of those things you already know. You're not ignorant people. You know all of that. I don't have to labor that at all. We live in the real world, so we know that is the case. But what I'm trying to get you to see today is to see your finances, your money, your possessions through spiritual lenses. See it as a spiritual thing, because it is. And if we don't see it as that, it will impact your spiritual life for the rest of your life. That's why Jesus talked so much about it, because he knew the hold it has on us as human beings. Paul says in Acts 20, 35, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that completely turns upside down the mindset of the whole world. Believers believe that. At least we ought to. But that cuts against the grain of what non-believers generally believe. Now Jesus is not saying that it's not blessed to receive. <laughs> All of us, without exception, are blessed in receiving. We, we, we enjoy it. We like it. It's helpful. So there's nothing wrong with that. He's not saying it's not blessed to receive. It's just that it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's a difference between receiving and giving. And you need to understand the difference. In receiving, there is a danger. In receiving, if we're not thankful to God, if we're not thankful to the giver, ultimately that's God, but it comes through other means. So if we don't appreciate God, appreciate the giver, then we might become thankless and actually greedy and feeling an entitlement which actually we're not really. But in giving, our hearts are enlarged. Our hands reach out. Our eyes are opened for opportunity. Our ears are opened to the cry of the needy. And so it's more blessed to give than even to receive. Receiving's good, but giving's better. Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is writing to the, this Gentile church, church at Corinth. And he's asking them to take up a special offering for the Jewish church at Jerusalem. Her suffering. We don't know exactly why they're suffering, 
perhaps because being former Jews who became believers, maybe they're struggling with their professions, with their work, with their businesses, maybe being ostracized, uh, because you must remember in those days there was all kinds of guilds. If you're a leather worker, a gold worker, a silver worker, a woodworker, you had to be in a guild. And I helped you trade. And so for whatever reason, we're not sure, but for whatever reason, the church at Jerusalem was really, really struggling. They were very, very poor. And, and, and Paul, sensing that, wanted to raise an offering for the relief of the poor. And also because he's talking to Gentiles, giving to Gentile Christians, giving to Jewish Christians, well, that would heal a lot of the suspicion and the ill feeling and the tension between the Jewish church and the Christian church, the Gentile church. And so he's writing here to the church at Corinth. Now, a full year beforehand... Whenever Titus, Pastor Titus, whenever he explained to the Corinthian church about this, they were excited. They were the first and excited and they wanted to do this and they were happy and they were glad they were going to raise this money, raise this offering. But that was a year ago. And a whole year has passed and they haven't done it yet. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes about this. In his first letter... Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, that on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So a full year beforehand, he had written to him and says, look, start putting money past every Lord's day. So when the time comes to receive the offering, you'll not be panicking. It'll be done. You'll have done it. And that will be wonderful. But a full year has gone past and that excitement has gone. It's all dissipated. They started the ball rolling, but then they stopped. And so Paul writes to them again and desires to stir them up regarding this offering. And even though he holds their feet to the fire, as it were, but he does it in such a diplomatic, in such a tender way. He still gets the message through, but he does it in such a lovely way, as we'll see in a moment as we begin to read. In fact, he really wants them to be blessed. And you'll see this and he's writing, he really wants them to be blessed, but more than that, he wants them to be a blessing. He wants them to be a blessing. And in being a blessing to the church at Jerusalem, they in turn would be blessed. And this is what he's going to be saying. So far above all of their thoughts that they may have of being blessed, he wants them to be a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so if we can begin just reading here then, with that as the introduction uh, from the beginning of chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, 
the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So Paul is writing here to the Corinthians and he's citing the church at Macedonia and how that in the midst of their deep poverty, they were as poor as the church in Jerusalem, if not poor. But in spite of that, when they heard what Paul wanted to do to the poor saints in Jerusalem, this Gentile church in Macedonia, they implored Paul. They begged him. We want to get in on this. We want to do this. So, so there may be a little feeling maybe that when Paul saw the state they were in, he maybe thought, do you know what? You need to get an offering. <laughs> You're in as bad state as the ones we're going to send this to. But they were having none of it. Out of their deep poverty, they begged Paul, please let us do this. We want to do this. What a spirit. What an attitude of generosity. No wonder he's writing to the Corinthian church who had been dragging their feet. And so he said... Not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Paul, you're saying this is a great need. We're going to trust you in this and we're going to help in every way we can. And so we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you also. Note from here, on. Notice the many times Paul brings the spiritual emphasis in her giving again and again. Because to Paul, this was a spiritual thing. Yes, it was practical. Yes, it was material. But it was spiritual at the very heart of it. And this is what I want you to see this morning. So he said, But as you abandon everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence. This was the most charismatic of all of the churches. It was probably the most exciting church, the most prophesying church. But there was one thing they were very, very weak on, following through in their giving. And so he said in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and, your, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Church, this is a grace that we need to abound in. We may be good on many levels. Individually, I'm saying, we may be good on many levels, but we need to abound in this one because this is a grace in our lives. I speak not by commandment. In other words, what he's saying here, I'm not using my apostolic office to order you to do this. Not putting a gun to your head. Not speaking this by commandment. But I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. 
I'm getting you to stop and look at the Macedonians. They're much, much worse off than you are. In fact, by their standards, you're very rich. So I'm pointing you to them and say, if they can do it, you can do it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. What an amazing statement. Notice how this is such a spiritual thing, this practical material offering that has even brought Christ into the very heart of it. And if that doesn't tell us this is a spiritual thing, then nothing ever will. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, how rich, he had all the glories of heaven. He was a king of angels. He sat at the Father's right hand. Indeed, he was the very creator of the ends of the earth and the universe. That's how rich he was. I'm not talking here about money in that sense. Jesus didn't need that in heaven. But in every possible way you can think he was rich beyond comprehension. And yet, for our sakes, he became poor. Not only in the sense that he was born in a manger, not only in the sense that eight days after his birth, when Mary and Joseph came to the temple to dedicate him and for the circumcision rite, that all they could bring was two turtle doves and two young pigeons. That was a very, very low offering. That's all they could afford. Couldn't bring a bullock, couldn't bring a ram, couldn't bring a lamb, just two turtle doves and two pigeons. How poor, even buried in a borrowed tomb, preached from a borrowed boat. But poor relatively in this sense that he left and laid aside that glory that he had with the Father. You know, it was one of the things that he prayed for the most for his people to see his glory that he once had with the Father. He laid all that aside. And much, much more. That we, through his poverty, through his condescension, through his laying aside and coming to the sin-cursed earth, that we could be made rich. Do you think that thinks, do you think that means that Jesus went to the cross, that we could be fabulously wealthy? You may someday be that. Nothing wrong with that. You work hard in your business or your life gets that as a reward, fine. But that's not the reason why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross for us 
poor sinners who were lost and going to hell, that we might be saved and washed in his blood and fit for his heaven. That's what he died for. Everything else is a bonus after that. And in this, I give advice. Notice here that Paul brings all of this down to such a spiritual emphasis that he's saying, listen, if Christ did all of that for you, what you ought to be doing for others. If God gave you the best that heaven could afford, surely it's no big thing for you to give to supply the needs of others. And this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be a completion out of what you have. So in other words, in a nice way of saying, get on with it. You've had long enough. <laughs> get on with it. Start it. For if there is first a willing mind that is accepted according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack. He's referring back to the manna in the wilderness. How God evenly dispersed, everybody had enough. Now, there are two things that God looks at in our giving. Our heart and our hand. Guess which one he looks at first? The heart. And the reason being is sometimes when it comes to giving, sometimes there's more in our heart than what's in our hand. Sometimes we would, have you ever found yourself saying, I wish I could have given more, but I haven't got it. I wish I had more time to invest in that, but I don't have it. But your heart wants to. But your, there's, there's more in your heart than's in your hand. But God looks at the heart and he's pleased that your heart wants to. Now, of course, we can bluff ourselves. Try to make ourselves think that, but I'm talking about genuinely. Genuine, our heart wants to do more, give more, do that, but we can't at this present time because of circumstances. But then there can be other occasions when there's less in our heart than what's in our hand. That we can give what's in our hand, but our heart's not in it. We give to save face. We give because we're pressurized. We give because we don't want to be embarrassed by not giving, but our heart's not in it. And God looks at the heart. And while that may bless whoever you're giving it to, but you're not going to be blessed. 
your heart's not in it, you won't be blessed. So God looks at the hand, he looks at the heart, but he looks at the heart first. And then he goes on to say, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. We don't know who that is, but he must have been a, a, a great brother and a very trusted brother. And we have sent him with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. In other words, he says, I'm sending... <laughs> Along with Titus, there's going to be two trustworthy, faithful servants. So that's at least three, and if I come, that'll be four, to make sure that this lavish gift will be handled and dealt with properly, that nobody can point the finger. That's what he's saying. And we have sent them with our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. It's unnecessary. I shouldn't really be writing to you about this. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you in the, to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So Paul is saying, listen, a year ago, you're all excited, you were willing, you were going to do this, and I heard that, and I believed that, and I trusted you to do that, and so wherever I went, among all the Gentile churches, I pointed back to you and said, hey, listen, the church at Corinth is going to do this, they're excited for it, they're actually doing this, and I boasted about you, I bragged on you. That's what he's saying. And he says, that stirred up many. That inspired other churches to do the same. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I have said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. <laughs> he's holding them to account, but he's doing it in such a diplomatic way. He says, listen, if some of these Macedonians come with me and you're not ready, he says, it's going to be so embarrassing for me. But he says, it's going to be embarrassing for you too. So he says, get with the program, do it. Have it done so that when they come or I come or the Titus comes, it'll be all ready. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said there are three types of givers. Sad givers, the mad givers, and the glad givers. <laughs> the sad givers, the ones who can hardly bear to part with it. Every pound's a prisoner. They're as tight as a bark on a tree. Uh, I mean, they just can barely, they just give the very least possible they can give. They're sad. And then there's the mad givers. Angry, and sometimes with justification. Because sometimes preachers make such a big deal. And oftentimes just gets people's backs up. And they just get angry. And again, but they're angry. That's not what God wants. It's not what he wants. And I hope none of you get angry with me. Sometimes I even forget to take the offering. They're waving the basket at me. And then there's the glad givers. The glad givers. They give gladly, cheerfully. A cheerful, hilarious... That's what the word means, hilarious givers. So what kind of a giver are you today? Sad, mad, or glad? I hope it's the latter. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Note that for every good work that you may be a blessing. Whatever God blesses you with, he wants that to be a blessing. Not just to bless you, he wants it to be a blessing for you to reach out and do something with it. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Notice again how Paul spiritualized this. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase, listen to it again, and increase what? Your bank account? Increase the fruits of your righteousness. See, that's the heart of all of our giving. Yes, it's practical. Yes, it's material. Fine. We all know that. But Paul wants us to get beyond that and see how it affects the fruits of our righteousness. It's a grace thing. The title of this message this morning is The Grace of Giving. It's a grace. And when you see it as a grace in your life, it's not so hard to part with because it's a spiritual thing. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, there it is again, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. In other words, when we give away from ourselves and we give to others, 
it causes great thanksgiving unto God. Others will be thanking God that somebody helped them. And so when you give to missions or you give to children or you give to whatever, whatever you give to, above and beyond what you do here, realize that it's such a blessing to somebody else. And you may not even know who's going to get that. Maybe you give to some missionary organization and they disperse that and there's people's lives that touch it. You'll never ever meet until you get to the glory. But it ministers and it goes to places that you could never go in a million years. And that's the best thing about it. And it causes thanksgiving. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. And then look at verse 15. Haven't spoken about all of that, but thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. <laughs> Paul said, Remember, in all of our giving, in all of our receiving, in all of our doing, don't forget God's indescribable gift to you. Nothing we could ever do could ever match that. It really couldn't. Sure it couldn't. God gave the best that he had, the greatest giver, the greatest gift. How could we not be givers in the light of God's indescribable gift? It should be as natural as breathing for the believer in fact, for many, many of you, it has become that. And sometimes because we have done, that, done this so many years, sometimes we get a little bit blasé about it or unthinking about it, forgetting that this is a grace in our lives. It's a deeply spiritual thing. And it increases the fruits of our righteousness. Apart from all kinds of material blessings we receive, it's the fruits of a righteousness that gets increased. What a joy it's going to be one day in the glory when you will meet somebody that through your gift is the only reason they came to Christ, through your generosity, through your blessing them. And it touched their hearts and it opened their hearts. Maybe people you didn't know, but through what you gave, somebody else reached them. Somebody else ministered, but you'll get credit because you give gladly and willingly. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What a gift God gave to us. The greatest gift that a man could receive is the life of Christ in us. The gift of God, amen, is eternal life. Lord, we stop and we thank you for your indescribable gift. 
We'll thank you, Lord, above all things that you do for us, that you give to us, above all the times that you have met our individual needs, of the times, Lord, when we didn't know what we were going to do and how we were going to do it, and you came through. But above all of that, your greatest gift was Jesus and his life in us, the hope of glory. So we stop and we give you thanks. Lord, would you make us a people of a generous spirit? Generous with our money, generous with our time, generous with our praise, generous, Lord, with everything you have given to each of us. Whatever talent you have given us, may we be generous with it. Whatever gifting, whatever blessing, whatever finances, whatever possessions, Lord, give us that generous heart, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.